You're listening to the Deepening Your Practice podcast with George Haas. For more information, visit www.metagroup.org. That's www.mettagroup.org. So welcome, everybody. This is Deepening Your Practice. Deepening Your Practice is intended as an intermediate or advanced class. Uh, And what that really means is that I'm not going to be teaching basic meditation. I would like to say that we are going to start a basic meditation class on Thursday nights. Uh, The second week, I think, of October will be the first class, and that will be on Thursday nights weekly. So if you find that the, the conversations in here are, are too advanced and you want to have some basic meditation instruction, then uh, come on Thursday nights. That'll be just really the, the, the basics of how to do it. And it, it should give you enough um, uh, instruction so that you'll be able to come to this more intermediate class. Um, we'll be going through a basic curriculum uh, in, in a short repeating cycle, say, of about eight weeks or so, and, and so that you can really get the basics of, down. The cycles in here tend to be around 18 months long or longer sometimes, um, and uh, it's, it's a highly technical uh, uh, investigation of meditation, which I find, uh, you know, exhilarating and interesting and and also very useful in a practical way, but I, I do get feedback quite a bit from people that um, experientially it's hard to get to if you don't have some kind of basic platform to do it. We've been going through the Manual of Insight. This is the new translation um, of the Mahasi Sayado text. And um, we've now reached the, the place of uh, called contemplation of feeling. Feeling in English is mostly related to emotion and we're not talking about emotion here. We're talking about uh, feeling tone is often an an English translation of it. Um, I like to call it the quality of the sensing experience itself. Um, Another way to talk about it is the second foundation or the second pasture of mindfulness so that if you're familiar with the Satipatthana Sutta, what we're talking about here is uh, the Pali word for it is Vedna or feeling tone or feeling. Um, This is is part of the body-mind process or the the sensing process. So... um, as we move through the first foundation, which is the, the uh, nama rupa is the Pali for that, or body and mind, what we're talking about really is this uh, six senses. So uh, touch, seeing, hearing, tasting, smelling. In Buddhism, the sixth sense is then mind, and we've spent quite a lot of time trying to tease out what the sensing capacity of mind is versus what is the mind that makes the sensing experience into things, if that's making sense. So the sensing experience of mind, in a short way of uh, explaining it, is the sequence of individual sensing events is known in, in the sensing experience of mind, and where your attention is drawn in each moment is the function of the sense of mind versus the thing that you then make it into. 
So you have the capacity to sense, you have these individual uh, uh, experiences or capacities for sensing. Each of them is activated or not activated based on whether an object that can be sensed is present. And each moment, all of them are active, all of them sense. And then the next thing that happens in the process of forming self and world is a Vedna or feeling tones. What is the experience of the actual sensing like? Is it pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral? Um, in the monastic text and traditions, it's really a, almost a dichotomy between pleasant and unpleasant. So that the description that they give is, is it pleasant, is it not pleasant, or is it neither pleasant or not pleasant? Um, the, the teacher that I had uh, for, for you know, the last two decades would uh, use the word neutral instead of neither pleasant nor unpleasant to describe something. But in the monastic texts, neutral is equated with ignorance and is something that they, they claim is very hard to detect. So I have decades of practice around the easiness of... of um, <coughs> detecting neutral sensa- neutral quality sensation, and yet, as I read this text to you tonight, it will be explained to you that that's next to impossible to do. So the languaging, again, of all of this stuff is very interesting to, to pay attention to. One of the things is, why would this even be useful, and why would a tradition develop around this uh, um, focus on the quality of the sensing experiences versus what you make the sensing experience into. And one of the reasons uh, that it's important to know that is if, if you find the actual sensing of the experience as unpleasant, it can inform the, the experience of self and world and make it an undesirable or unwanted experience, even though it's just the sensing itself that's unpleasant. Um, I'm looking at you. You're a rock climber. I don't. Uh, if I were to uh, to rock climb, which I don't, um, um, my initial resistance to it is that I imagine the physical activity of climbing to be quite unpleasant. Um, the the potential of falling great distances and hitting the ground I think of as quite unpleasant from the sensing experience. <laughs> However, you may uh, find that the activity itself beyond the unpleasantness of it is a a valuable activity. I I work out regularly and I find often the experience of working out to be quite unpleasant as a sensing experience. But I like the the overall effect of how my body feels when it's it's, uh, stretched and uh, exercised more than I like it when it's stiff and, and lax. Um, if, a, if, if, an, if the, the, the activity uh, is pleasant in the sensing of it, you may create a value for the activity which exceeds actually its value to you in the world. Uh, is that making sense? So if we tease out this quality of pleasant and unpleasant Uh, in this chain of events that creates the experience of self and world, we can take out a bias that might develop in response to just how the experience of sensing it happens. 
and then we can have a clearer view of the thing that we make it into. Is that making sense? So understanding we have the sensing, we have the quality of the sensing experience, and then we have the thing that we make it into. Mind, that's mind. And mind uh, is this process um, of comparing the database of previous experience to the pattern of experience in the present moment and see if they can find a match. So there's a processing speed to this. If the pattern of sensing experience in the present moment finds a match in the database of previous experiences, then the present moment sensing experience becomes that experience. And one of the things that can happen is that all of the biases, all of the previous experiences, are then attached to the experience of the present moment. So we also want to have good clarity around the present moment experience being different than the catalog of sensing experiences previously, and that we retain an awareness that this is the the present moment. Uh, One of the things that happens is that, uh, quite commonly, uh, is that all of the limitations of the previous experiences attached to the experience of the present moment, even though the present moment may not be limited in the same way. Does that make sense? So that you can find that you're self-limiting because you believe that the present moment is limited by the associations of the past, even though it isn't, and so you don't take the actions that would be available to you and in that way create this, uh, this um, condition of how the self and world are, even though that may not be the way that the present moment is. Because this conditioning is... Uh, a collection or a record of what actually happened, it isn't inaccurate in that way. Uh, We've all had conditioning in our our childhood experiences in relationship to our caregivers uh, where they set the limits for us. Um, And because of the nature of forming self and world out of the sensing experience and because it relies so heavily on this database of the things that have uh, happened, it can limit our, uh, possi- our capacity to imagine the possibilities that are available to us in the present moment. And so it's very useful to be able to investigate that, the quality of making the present moment from this interaction with the database of experience that we have. When we encounter an experience that we haven't had before, and one of the reasons why new experiences are so... Um, uh, have the experience of being so vital and so intense is that the mind, the body mind has to work very hard and is very focused on the conditions of the present moment but when patterns uh, that we experience are things that are uh, deeply conditioned or we've recognized many times before we can easily slip out of the experience of the present moment into the procedural memory, the automatic processing, and then it seems quite uh, routine, quite rote, quite uh, uninteresting. Are you following me in these descriptions of how experience is? Um, There was a study with motorcycles, um, 
Uh, a motorcycle with one headlight is nine times more likely to be in an accident than a motorcycle with two headlights, uh, particularly if you're on a commuting route. And the reason for this is that the mind uh, doesn't necessarily use the current version of what's happening. Uh, if you're driving to and from work and you've done it a hundred times, the body-mind doesn't feel a need to create a new image of the driving. It goes by so quickly you don't really need to know at any level of detail and it takes a lot of calories to form each of those images. So you could be driving down a commuter road and because the body-mind is not set up to see one headlight, it's looking for two headlights, you could look in the mirror and see the motorcycle. The motorcycle would be there, yet the, the body-mind would not include it in the visual representation of the world. And you could change lanes and run the motorcycle off the road. And you, you were, would be correct in saying that it wasn't there, that you didn't see it because the mind didn't include it in the image of the present moment that you experienced consciously. Is that making sense? You do know that you that if you're looking around the room and everything is detailed and everything is sharp and everything uh, is in focus, that you're not seeing the sensing experience. You're seeing the mental image that the body mind has created out of hundreds of individual sensing experiences. Uh -huh. So, is the idea of uh, identifying vagna is that with the intention to sort of incorporate our somatic ex the the experience felt in our bodies, or is it is it that and or separately from uh, that we're trying to tease apart the mind from our experience? Um, the mind of sensing, the sensing aspect of mind, or the sense aspect of mind, is in, in, included, right. and the quality of the sensing experience. Uh, is this this complete understanding of what the sensing experience is before it's made into something. Um, for instance, if something is unpleasant to sense, you may avoid sensing it. Right. And so you exclude it from your experience. If something is pleasant in sensing, you may be drawn to sensing that and ignore all of the rest of the sensing experience, which is either neutral or unpleasant. And it, it then shapes your capacity to create the perception of self and world. So it's just like it's more that. Right. So it's, um, in t tonight we're going to do a meditation where we focus on developing sensory clarity through teasing apart visual experience, auditory experience, and the felt sense of the body. And then we're going to do a second noting where we attempt to evaluate whether the sensing experience itself is pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. A double, a double noting. What we, what we want to, to begin to notice is that the, the, the craving aversion and unconsciousness process can attach to uh, the Vedna aspect of something and that that will then direct our attention to create a distorted view of self and world. Does that make sense? Because um, you, you have... the in, in the capacity to sense, you have the, say, in seeing, you have the capacity, if you're sighted, to detect light. 
If there's no light present, then there's no activation of the, the possibility to see. If there's some light but not enough light, you, you'll see everything in black and white. You won't see color. There's cones and rods. Uh, so most people have two, two sensing capacities. Some people have three. Um, rods and cones, we'll talk about. Cones uh, see color. They don't see anything else. Rods see line and gradation of gray. Um, rods take much less light to activate than cones do. So do you notice at night, um, when it gets dark, everything looks sort of black and light? But there's not a strong sense of color in the night? That's because there often isn't enough light to activate the cones, so you're just seeing the shape and the gradation of gray. And then in the areas where there's a light, you may notice a ring of color around that light, but the rest of it looks black and white, because there's enough light just in that spot to activate the cones, and then the mind synthesizes an image out of those sensing experiences. Does that make sense? So we really do want to begin to pay attention to how we form uh, the sensing experience into self and world because it's very elastic and we can make almost anything out of it. One of the famous metaphors that the, the Buddha used was the farmer who came into the dark shed and saw a snake in the corner and took a machete and cut it into pieces and then lit a candle and saw that he cut his rope up into pieces. But in the moment of seeing the coil, the mind flashed on snake, and the, the, the action followed immediately because that would be life-threatening. Had there been more light, of course, the mind would have been able to see that it wasn't a snake, it was a rope. Um, in seeing, of course, we look around, the eyes move in a brownieing, brownieing motion, and they take snapshots of detail and and focus, and then the mind creates a tableau of those hundreds of snapshots that creates a uniform perception of the world as in focus and detailed. You're, you're following me on this one? Um, the body-mind can generate that image in, any, in, in just an, an amazing variety of ways that don't accurately reflect what's happening. And so what we want to begin to do is really have a, a direct experience of the sensing and rely on that and stop relying on the thing that we make it into. And that in this process of meditation, we're touching into the sensing experience and then looking at what we make it into and then touching into the sensing experience and looking at what we make it into so we can begin to have this constant evaluation as to whether the thing that we've made out of the sensing is an accurate reflection of what's actually happening. Constantly evaluating whether we're in the present moment or we're in, in the past, in the database of things. Um, oh, I see where this is going. Has anybody ever said that to you? You see where it went and you're assigning that meaning to the, the present moment. And then, all of a sudden, all of the options that might be different are off the table because you don't recognize them. 
you just recognize the outcomes from the past and that's where you're headed. And then your actions are informed with that's what the outcome is going to be. In, in, in some sense, you're directing yourself toward that outcome. Even though many, many, many other possibilities would be there if you could see them. And so then we're into this capacity to imagine different outcomes than the conditioned responses that you have had. This is vitally important for coming out of conditioning because if you can't imagine a different outcome than the ones that you've already experienced, you will limit yourself to the ones that have already happened to you. So that if you had a crappy childhood, you can be self-limiting to the conditions of that crappy childhood as you move through your life, even though there's no requirement that you do that other than your, your conditioned response to the sensing experience. Is that making sense? I am doing uh, some, some uh, work now with a Tibetan teacher just about imagining what the outcomes of the, the future might be. And it's just one hard smack in the face after another at my own self-limiting. Years and years of not being able to imagine an outcome different than the one that's already happened and then limiting myself to the same outcome over and over again. It's in a way very painful to see that that uh, interruption in the capacity to imagine has been so limiting because I have consciously um, struggled not to limit myself in that way. And um, so the, that autobiographical memory, that consciousness of the, that conscious awareness of the present moment is not actually the big picture. The big picture is, is that automatic response to the present moment that we begin to need to pay attention to. And that's one of the, the things about this. Uh, the conditioned response to sensing is old, unless it's something you've never sensed before. Unpleasant, 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 unpleasant. We need to really push into the present moment and make sure that the present moment sensing is the thing that's unpleasant and not the database of previous experience. Am I? Is that pretty clear? All right. When feeling a pleasant feeling, a bhikkhu understands, I feel a pleasant feeling. According to this passage from the Satipatthana Sutta, pleasant bodily or mental feelings should be noted as pleasant, comfortable, good, or happy. Then one will understand uh, pleasant feeling as it is. A person who, by focusing on an object that causes pleasure to arise, observes feeling only as feeling, is one who knows that he is observing a pleasant feeling. So, unpleasant physical feelings such as cramps, stiffness, aching, dizziness, heat, cold, numbness, pain, itchiness, and tiredness are all classified as physical pain. One should note them precisely as cramp, cramp, and so on. Unpleasant mental experiences such as sadness, frustration, worry, and fear are classified as mental pain or distress. 
These feelings should be noted using the ordinary language such as sad, sad, frustration, frustration, and so on. Neither pleasant nor unpleasant feeling. It is quite difficult to clearly experience neutral feelings as they are neither pleasant nor unpleasant. The commentaries uh, compare neither uh, unpleasant nor pleasant feeling to ignorance since it is too subtle to be noticed. Um, but both a neither unpleasant nor pleasant feeling and ignorance seem to be clear and easy to perceive with knowledge derived from scripture but not with empirical knowledge. Um, it is not as easy to notice ignorance as it is to notice attachment and aversion. In the same way, neither unpleasant nor pleasant feelings are not as obvious as pleasant or unpleasant ones. We only say that neither unpleasant nor pleasant feelings and ignorance are difficult to understand and not distinct in reference to how difficult it is to experience them empirically. Neither pleasant nor unpleasant feeling is barely obvious like an object in the dark. However, when both pleasant and unpleasant feelings are absent, one can find the feeling to be neither. Thus, one can inferentially know it is the opposite of those pleasant and unpleasant feelings. Barely obvious here means that it is difficult to clearly see neither pleasant or unpleasant feeling with empirical knowledge. That is why the commentary says, like an object in the dark. Understanding the difference between inferential understanding and empirical understanding, this is one of the basic uh, concepts of vipassana meditation or mindfulness. Empirical uh, experience means that you directly sense it. And inferential knowledge means that if you're sensing one thing, uh, and that is part of a whole that you can infer that all of the rest of them are there. So you have six senses that come together to make each experience, and you can focus in on only one aspect of that sensing experience. If you're focused and exploring one aspect of the sensing experience, but you know it to be a part of a whole, you can infer that all of the other sensing experiences must be there in order for that activity to be happening. Does that make sense? The empirical insight is the sensing experience that you're focused on, and the inferential insight is uh, the understanding that all of the other circumstances for that particular thing to be happening must be present if that's happening, even though your attention is only on one aspect of it. It can then be said that you have complete awareness of any phenomena based on both empirical and inferential insight. Is that making sense? The reason that that's important is that you don't need to have complete awareness of everything that's happening in order to understand something. You can have knowledge of a piece of it, and the way that Vipassana works, V means to divide and Pasana means to see that you can take any experience, any prosaic experience, and you can explore it sense gate by sense gate, and having completely explored individually each sense gate, know uh, empirically what the experience is, um, 
But in the moment of sensing, even though you're only focused on one, you can infer that the rest must be there for that to be happening. So what they're talking about in terms of pleasant and unpleasant, pleasant sensations are easy to detect, unpleasant sensations are not easy to detect. So Sorry, unpleasant sensations are easy to detect, but if you're not detecting either pleasant or unpleasant, you can infer, even if you can't detect neither pleasant nor unpleasant, that that neutral experience of sensing is there. Um, in my own experience of practice, since the, the teacher that I worked with uh, thought that neutral was the easiest one to detect, um, I've had no issue detecting the experience of neutral. Mm-hmm. But, but it is still the process of it's neither pleasant nor unpleasant, therefore it's neutral. I was thinking about the passage that said that neutral experience and ignorance are, are, are difficult to, to, to uh, tease out. Um, I noticed um, that uh, craving, aversion, unconsciousness, or ignorance is one way to look at it, in, or as I like to say, thinking. Right? You get pulled away into thinking, and the, the moment that you made the decision to get pulled away into the thinking is hardly experienced, right? That's that subtle piece of ignorance. In the moment when the distracting thought came up, and you made the choice to follow the thought instead of stay with the technique. Do you ever catch yourself doing that? I notice it's almost like this vacuum energy that's pulling me into the thinking, into the thinking, and then all of a sudden I'm gone. And then you recognize that you're thinking and not meditating, and then you come back into the thinking. But I don't experience uh, neutral Vedna in the same way because it seems clearly not pleasant or unpleasant. What's your experience of that? I think I find the more that I identify as pleasant, I try not to find room for it anymore. Oh. And it's like an active uh, amount of unpleasantness from my childhood and how it overtakes a lot of decision-making. Like, when I'm here, there's a level of safety where it can be... It makes me uh, happy to not want room, to not want to go there. Mm. You know, and then you notice that you're just here, and then you just find pleasure here. You know, but not wanting to have room anymore for pleasant thoughts because they're almost like self-generated. Mm-hmm. But what about the sensing experience? Meaning, am I noticing like again, the thing is with the auditory feedback, you know, the clear talk. Like it's, I've had um, experiences lately where it doesn't need to get there. It's the, the knowing before the right. meeting to have the clear talk of convincing or unknowing. And then seeing the uh, the experience of pleasant, unpleasant, neutral. It just I can see it. Whatever the knowing is, you see the mind bringing in the unpleasant. Well, that's the next. That's mind. Mm-hmm. That's 
craving aversion and consciousness mm -hmm. or any of the hindrances, mm -hmm. but that's in reaction to what you've made it into. Mm -hmm. The Vedna experience precedes that and is related to the sensing experience, not to what it's made into. So I've noticed that, I guess before what is being made into the aversion, I find sensing itself to be pleasurable. Okay. Mainly. Like, it, there's nothing preceding the, the aversion, like I said, the aversion is that mental hindrance. But anything, the sounds, the feeling, the air, it's all relatively neutral or pleasant. I don't really find it unpleasant. The unpleasantness is the aversion. Right. Good. So. That's the insight. I think it's difficult to choose sometimes. Is this pleasant or unpleasant? And mm -hmm. then it changes through the meditation, the same sensations. Yep. That's kind of what, that was kind of the main thing that was wrong with me. Good insight. That's what I was noticing, that things are pleasant and unpleasant at the same time. And I was sort of divided. It's like, you know, uh, how do you label that? Just note it pleasant, unpleasant. Right. Can you give me an example? Yeah, like the sounds I would hear, like um, uh, the tone at some point, there was like a ringing. Um, and it's like, I like the te ringing tone, but there were aspects of the ringing that were dissonant. And so I liked, it, I liked the sound, but I didn't like the dissonance sort of in the tone. So I liked it, and I, but I didn't like it all at the same time. Or in rapid succession of where the attention was. Right, it's very rapid, like pleasant, unpleasant, pleasant, unpleasant. Right? Yeah. We really, when you pay attention, can only focus on one experience at a time. Mm -hmm. And the way that we have the sense of multiple experiences by making the object bigger, the awareness bigger. Uh, and so really with these kinds of instructions it's to push into a zooming in narrow focus so that really only one experience is available at a time but the quality of a ring can go from pleasant to unpleasant in the same ring but sequentially not mm -hmm. simultaneously I would think at least in the way that I experience yeah it's like the first sense of the tone is pleasant and then the oscillations you know, the sound of the plane in the distance for me was pretty neutral, but then when it got too loud, then the sensing experience was became unpleasant. And then when it passed and was fading, it stopped being unpleasant and became neutral again. I find the body the predominance of sensations in the body are unpleasant for me. Um, it's one of the reasons why I think a lot of people stay out of the body and just land in the head. Um. Yeah, I thought, um, actually kind of liked the titration. So it was like, in the body it's, it's uh, super unpleasant and so being able to, it seems more bearable to fall into the sensing experience of that unpleasant experience and then come out and have like sort of like come up out of like 
under the water and take a breath almost. And then, and I think also just that like gentle reminder every time after I'd come out and noted it that I was going to go back in and sense it helped sort of remind me not to get attached to the unpleasant or that it gets sort of allowed to be. It's like that separation of noting and experience really was a helpful reminder like every time. Good. This is deepening your practice, so I'm always going to be advocating ways to deepen your practice. One way is to go on retreat. Uh, the next retreat we're offering through Metagroup is the uh, winter retreat. Uh, we do uh, a winter and summer retreat on the West Coast and a spring and fall retreat on the East Coast. So we are offering a, a fall retreat uh, in New York um, in November. But if you don't want to travel out to New York and you want to go on retreat here, we're going to do uh, uh, the winter retreat at the Seven Circles Center in the Sierra Nevada. Um, so it's at 3,500 feet, which is the snow line. So maybe there'll be snow, maybe there won't be snow. I think that's kind of entertaining as a thought, as a sort of long-term Southern California residence. I remember snow vaguely from 30 years ago. <laughs> but now I have the chance of having it on retreat. Um, it's a metta-vipassana retreat, so what that means is the first part of the retreat is all metta, and then the second part of the retreat is all vipassana. Um, I think that you can come for four days or seven days or come for the, the entire 11 days. It's up to you. It's a lovely spot, actually, quite in, out in the wilderness. Um, the uh, road into the retreat center is 18 miles long, which gives you a sense of it being out in the middle of nowhere. Um, so I have flyers out there for that. Um, another way to deepen your practice is to have a daily practice. If you're having trouble getting a daily practice going, um, I do a, a conference call every morning at 7.30 for 25 minutes. We meditate Monday through Saturday. You can uh, get uh, information about that on my website, metagroup.org, M-E-T-T-A-G-R-O-U-P.org. I also have some slots open for one-on-one -on -one mentoring if you want to have regular contact with a meditation teacher and, and go more deeply one-on-one -on -one with your practice. I have some flyers out there for that as well. Um, we do intensives. So these are uh, intensives organized around exploring uh, relational mindfulness through the meaningful life. So it's a meditation exploration around your attachment uh, processes. We're going to be starting two more intensives in, one is in, um, both of them are starting in March. Uh, we do five levels of training. The first level of training is a kind of introduction to the process of uh, what attachment is like and how to sense it and what meditation te techniques are useful. And we're also going to be starting a level two practice. A level two practice is uh, for anybody who's already done one of the, the introductory classes or done one of the previous intensives. The main difference between the, the level one and level two practice is that 
the uh, IPF or idealized parent figure meditation protocol that was developed at Harvard by Dan Brown is going to be included in the level two training so that we'll begin to do um, uh, meditation around repairing the capacity to imagine outcomes different than the ones that you're conditioned to expect. So this is a really interesting, it's one of the most interesting practices that I've, I've actually ever done. It's based on the Mahamudra practice of the Tibetans, uh, which is the deity practice. You, have you seen all those tankas, all of those religious paintings uh, from the Tibetan Buddhist tradition? That's the Mahamudra practice, where you stare at the image of the Buddha and attempt to become the image of the Buddha. The insight there is that you replace the sense of self with the image of the Buddha, and in, in successfully doing that, you see into the concept of no-self, that if you can create an image uh, of yourself, uh, image of yourself as the deity, and so identify with it that it displaces your own sense of self-identification, then you see the uh, in, in insubstantial nature of self. <clears throat> and if you apply it to the idealized parent figure, you can see through the actual parent figure that you had into an ideal uh, uh, parenting situation so that your database is updated to all of the expectations and relationships that you might have through ideal encounters. It's an uh, incredible, incredibly transformative uh, thing to do. We, if, you, if that interests you uh, and, and you haven't done the, fir the first level of training, uh, that's a requirement for the second level because the meditation techniques that you need in order to be able to do the, uh, the IPF protocol is, are, are, will be taught in the, the first level of training. We're also going to try and do a meditation interventions for the addiction process uh, intensive. Um, that works uh, if you have uh, addictions uh, to processes or substances we're really focusing on relapse prevention so that you can stabilize your, uh, your abstinence or harm reduction and then move into relational repair. We think that addiction is an attachment disturbance and that if you can stabilize the, the uh, use of substances and processes, then you can begin to look at the underlying attachment disturbance and repair that which um, uh, produces a, a, a really good uh, possibility of long-term uh, abstinence and harm reduction. And um, also, you can form a, a, a network of people around you that will support you in your exploration of life. Um, this class is offered on a, a Donna basis. The suggested Donna for this class is $20. Donna is the Pali word for generosity. But it is your individual practice of generosity. So uh, we want you to give uh, at a level that is uh, commiserate with your resources and that feels generous. So any amount is fine. Each time you come, though, do consider giving something. Uh, the practice of generosity really is a heart opener for you 
And so you have to engage in the practice to do that. But also understand if you have no resources, uh, the community is very happy to support this place for you to come and practice. And, uh, and so don't uh, inhibit your attendance in any way based on your resources. There's a bowl out there for cash. I also can take credit cards or debit cards. You may also notice out there that there's some bracelets out there if you need a, a transitionary object or something to remind you to practice. There's uh, Grab one of those. And we'll see you next week. Thank you.